Everyone has an important piece to play. Everyone can do something, whether it's letter writing or petitioning or outreach or protest or direct action or underground, you know, illegal stuff. Like there's a place for everyone um, to do something. And as long as we're working together and we're focusing on something specific, whether that's something small or big, we have the ability to make really big change in this world. Hello, Hello, and welcome to the Vegan FTA Activist Podcast, a podcast designed to give you insights, tactics, and strategies for becoming a better advocate for animal rights and animal liberation. Through this show, you will meet incredible activists working across the many different fields of advocacy, allowing you to find your form of activism for the animals. I'm Gareth Skur. And I'm Jackie Norman. You are listening to episode 44 pressure campaigns and why you should be using them with Jake Conroy, aka The Cranky Vegan. In this interview, Jake takes us back to his fight against Huntingdon Life Sciences through the Shack campaign and analyzes the effectiveness and strategies of the current vegan movement. Along the way, Jake provides so, so many deep insights and observations into how we can all be more effective and create radical change through pressure campaigning. To get the most out of this episode, check out the video version over on our YouTube channel. If you enjoy the podcast and the series, please leave some stars on your favorite podcast platform's ratings bar. Now, on with the podcast. We always like to start these interviews by diving back into our guest past to take a look at what moved us to take action for animals in the first place. I understand it all kicked off for you in the 90s, sort of going vegan around 1995. Uh, yeah. graduating art school in 96 is that right yeah kind of I mean a graduate is a stretch but yeah I'll take it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <love> it. <laughs> and um and you were also getting involved in things like uh whale hunt sabotages in uh back in 99 so I'd love to know what first led you to um adopting a vegan lifestyle in the first place but more importantly uh, was there any kind of defining moment that drew you into becoming an activist which you know has gone on to, to shape your entire life yeah, I kind of have a begin like a boring origin story. It wouldn't make for a very good Marvel movie. Um, but I, I did get kind of involved, you know, in politics or music, uh, starting at a pretty early age. Um, you know, when I was interested in the civil rights movement in the, in the United States in elementary school, you know, like eight or nine, and reading a lot about like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and things like that. But then through hip hop, uh, getting introduced to the idea of like other ways that people were making change, including like pretty radical stuff. So I learned about black power and black liberation and the black Panther party and Malcolm X and things like that through listening through to groups like public enemy and grandmaster flash and, and things like that. And as I kind of moved into my teens, I got involved in hardcore and punk rock. Um, and in the early nineties, animal rights was a very big issue in that scene in that community. Um, so it was just kind of a natural progression really to go <clears throat> to be in the, involved in hardcore music and, and get involved in, in animal rights because it's just they were kind of one in the same. So um, in, when I moved to the Pacific Northwest of the United States um, in the mid 90s, it was a very radical place. Like there was radical activism, radical politics, radical people. So getting involved in activism just meant you kind of dove headfirst into like grassroots radical activism. Um, and so when I became vegan, I was just like, this is great. I feel good. But but like, this is not where my journey ends. Like, I have to be an activist because I don't think being vegan alone is really going to change anything. Um, and so I got involved in, in, in activism. And in my head, I was like, you know, you have to, you know, you need to become an activist. And I remember walking to school one day and passing these people that were doing protests. And, and I, I think they were protesting against the circus. And I walked past them 
And I walked about a half a block into my head. I'm like, Jake, this, that's what you want to do. Like turn around and go talk to them. But I'm a bit of an introvert. So I'm like, I don't really want to. And they're like, no, turn around and talk to them. So I went back and, and I went up to them. I said, oh, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're protesting the circus. And, um, at the time they marched all the elephants and, and the animals from like the train station for about two miles through downtown Seattle as like a show and the, to the arena where the circus was going on. And, uh, I was like, Oh, are, you know, are you protesting the circus this weekend? They're like, yeah, come on down. And, um, I said, how do I get in touch with you? And they said, Oh, we're in the yellow pages. And I don't know if you have the yellow pages anywhere outside the United States, but basically it's, it used to be like a huge thick book of like every number imaginable. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. So I went home from school and, and looked up, uh, animal rights in the yellow pages and there was one group northwest animal rights network and i called them up and got the information and went to the protests and the rest was history oh, end of the story good. end of the interview uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a nutshell. that's awesome and, and it's brilliant yeah. that you that you got into everything so young i mean when when i was nine years old i was not doing any of that stuff i think i was probably like trying to yeah i don't know yeah i mean elementary school i was i was i was reading i would go to my library and just devour the books there but you know i wouldn't really get involved in activism until i was like 19 or 20 so it took me a little bit of time to connect the dots but they got that. You know. I, I know you said like yeah. it wouldn't make a great marvel film but i'd love to see more of a marvel film like that you know with the whole hardcore scene and everything you know like getting, uh -huh. getting uh getting yeah. rowdy out there on the street but um no it's so fantastic and you know for any of our audience who are not already familiar with your activism uh, Jake was an instrumental part of the Shack Stop Huntington uh, Animal Cruelty Campaign, which has since been the subject of a powerful documentary called The Animal People. Uh, this campaign against Huntington life sciences gained notoriety for the strategies and tactics uh, used, and especially the government's response to them, uh, with the largest FBI investigation of its time and major legislative change happening in order to silence activists coming from it. Um, with Joaquin Phoenix as the executive producer. Um, I'm going to say, no offense to his acting. I love me some Joaquin <laughs> and stuff like that. But to me, this is his greatest contribution to film, uh, just being the executive producer on this, because uh, it was such a fantastic job, the director, and everyone did a fantastic job making it. But yeah. I've watched a lot of vegan, a lot of health, a lot of environmental films, but this one was one that just... It, it, I've never seen you react to anything. Yeah, this got, <laughs> you're making me a radical man. Like <laughs> I was getting pumped. Nothing I was wrong getting, with that. I was doing my notes and stuff. I was getting ready to throw my notebook at the wall. And the, <laughs> yeah, watch the film, folks. If you haven't already, the animal people. We will include a link to it um, somewhere because it's on a couple of different pages now. But wow, it, it's just such a huge inspiration and continues to be a brilliant learning resource for mm -hmm. activists globally to see what is possible when you have enough passion, dedication, and all for a just cause. You know, while the yeah. campaign, though, got taken out of action before Huntington Life Sciences could be fully shut down, you gave them hell all the way. And I personally <laughs> still see it as like a massive victory in all the battles that were won. I'm curious to learn um, how you view the eventual outcome of the campaign, despite the final goal being unachievable in the end. Um, was the progression of the animal rights uh, activism and movement something that we can still celebrate, you know, just from those efforts made, you know, the progression of advocacy? Yeah, I, it's, it's obviously a huge discussion and, and things we can talk about and we should be talking about for quite some time because I think there's, as you said, there's a lot of important lessons in there. Um, I do, I do often tell people though, like, I, I don't think it was unachievable. I don't think that we failed. I think what happened was that we were stopped. 
And I think there's a difference. And I think it's not that what we were doing didn't work. It's that it worked so well that the governments in multiple countries um, put their entire effort and resources into stopping us. And I, and I think that's an important distinction. Um, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing or one of the beautiful things to learn about the Shack camp that we can learn from the Shack campaign is what happens when we keep our, our activism grassroots and we keep it non-hierarchical um, and, and, and kind of organize on a horizontal level. And, and meaning that, like, at least in the United States, you know, we were doing Shack USA, the U.S. chapter of Shack, and there's a handful of us that did it. We weren't telling people, like, you have to do this and you have to do this and you can't do this tactic and you can't do this or that. Like, we just said, you know, whatever you want to do, whether we think it's a good idea or not, we'll support you as long as there was no physical harm being done to anyone. Um, and that, that allowed people to, to grow as an activist and grow their communities and also take ownership over the things they were doing. And I think, <clears throat> I think that's the beautiful thing about grassroots organizing is that like everyone has an important piece to play. Everyone can do something, whether it's letter writing or petitioning or outreach or protest or direct action or underground, you know, illegal stuff. Like there's a place for everyone um, to do something. And as long as we're working together and we're focusing on something specific, whether that's something small or big, we have the ability to make really big change in this world. And, and, and I think that like, when you look at things like the Shaq campaign, um, you can see that like, uh, what was essentially a small grassroots movement was able to achieve just like massive things. We got some of the, we got the, one of the world's largest animal testing facilities to be removed from the New York stock exchange. Like essentially we were determining what companies could and could not you know, sell their shot, their shares on the New York Stock Exchange. And then they got kicked off the over-the-counter bulletin boards. We got a $30 a share company to be moved to the pink sheets or the penny 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 stocks where their shares could only trade for two or three cents a share. And, and like, if we have the ability to do that as a grassroots movement, um, I think we have the ability to do pretty much anything. Um I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I feel like I'm on a good flow. So I was going to keep But I do think that like, you know, uh, I, I think the importance of, of the campaign, you know, obviously we wanted to shut the lab down. And, but I, I think the outcome of the campaign and things learned from the campaign are still coming out today and like how we can use those lessons, how we can learn from them. How can we even look at the mistakes and be like, hey, you guys messed up here. Maybe we shouldn't do that in the future. Like all of those things are super important. And, and I don't think it's imperative that we just focus on the Shaq campaign, but we look at all the campaigns that we've done and all the activism we've done um, and really evaluate it and be critical about it and be comfortable in, in the uncomfortable by having conversations that are like, hey, we've been doing this for 30 years and nothing's really changing. Let's try something different for a couple of years and see what happens. Like what's the worst that's going to happen? We continue to lose? Like, Let's be open to trying new things. And I think that was the cool thing about the Shack campaign was that it was like, we've been doing this stuff for decades. We want to try something a little bit different. Um, a lot of people didn't like that we were doing it, but we did it. And I think, I, I think, you know, we achieved an awful lot. And I don't just mean me and the people in the Shack, but like all of us as a global movement. And so um, I think there's a lot to pick apart and, and huge discussions to be had and I will spare you uh, moving forward in those discussions at the current time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I, for us, we always feel like, you know, with uh, activism and even just veganism as a whole, it's always that evolutionary process. And so 
for yeah. the more time that you're in it, the more time you have to analyze these different movements, these different uh, events and stuff like that and, and grow your own advocacy. And so, yeah, I really do encourage all of our audience to get and watch that film and see what resonates with them because um, as we go through this conversation, we'll, we'll go into a few parts, you know, that resonated with us. Um, but it's just, there's just so much to it. And yeah, just yeah. having that open sort of sandbox in order to, yeah, you do you and let's do this together. <laughs> it's fantastic. Right. Yeah. And that's when the beauty really happens, you know? It's like, I'm not great at doing outreach. I'm not great at like fundraising, but I know some people that are. I'm good at design. I'm good at like a couple other things and like pulling it together. We start putting all those puzzle pieces together and that's when we, we can win. Definitely, definitely. It was, uh, yeah, we've all got our strengths and, uh, and you know, like you say, we can we can do amazing things together. And, um, you know, I, I think that we, um, we, can't, we can't talk about the Shack campaign without addressing targeting. Um, mm -hmm. For followers of your YouTube channel, they will know it's all about pressure, pressure, pressure. <laughs> and, you know, we need to have pressure campaigns. And the major component of that is picking your targets. So for any of our audience unaware of this strategy, would you mind briefly explaining what pressure campaigns are and how we need to be choosing our targets for maximum effect? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> also a big conversation, so I'll try to keep it brief. Um, but, I, you know, the idea of pressure campaigns is picking a place you want to uh, shift or change or shut down completely and then going after them. Um, and so I, I often think of like, campaigns um, like a puzzle and the overall picture of the puzzle is a thing that you want to achieve, whether that's animal liberation or a vegan world or like this company closed or this policy being written or changed. Um, and then you have all your different puzzle pieces, which are all the tactics. And the strategy is how you put those puzzle pieces together to form that bigger picture. Um, and that's essentially what a pressure campaign is, right? It's, it's figuring out what you want to do, what you want to change, what you want to close coming up with the tactics and figuring out how to put them together successfully. Um, and and, and the, the beautiful thing about pressure campaigns is, is there's so many different ways to be involved in them. There's so many different tactics you can use. They're always going to be a little bit different, um, but they can bring about really important change in the world. Um, you know, I, the, the kind of fun thing I like about pressure campaigns is, is the idea of like secondary and tertiary targeting, which I talk a lot about as well. But if you think, and this is what we used a lot in, in the Shack campaign, almost predominantly, quite effectively. Um, if you think of your, you know, your target, whether that's a policy or a lab you want to close or a policy you want to change or a law you want to change or, you know, this community to go vegan, whatever, you can, you can target and protest that particular, you know, number one target. But if you think about all the companies around it that 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 your target needs to survive, um, those become what would be called like secondary targeting. So a company, for, for instance, in the Shack campaign, um, you know, we were targeting a laboratory and a laboratory, a business needs things to survive. They need a bank account. They need insurance. They need insurance to ensure their work. They need um, auditors. They need investors. They need a board of directors. They need shareholders. And all those people and companies can become secondary targets. But the interesting thing is like a bank that might have 5,000 bank accounts, they don't need to keep that one bank account for the laboratory in order for them to survive as a bank. An insurance company might write a, you know, a thousand policies, 
but they don't need that one policy for the laboratory in order to survive as a company. But your target needs the insurance and they need the bank. So if you can convince those secondary targets to strip away that policy or take away that contract or that account, you're, you're protesting and, and hindering your target's ability to operate or to survive, if that makes sense. Um, so with pressure campaigns, you have all these whole avenues of, of ways to protest and, and make change and affect things and um, essentially crush your target. And I, to me, that's like one of the really exciting things about campaign work. And, and again, we saw that in really big ways in the Shaq campaign. It really does just illustrate that point. Yeah, if you if you got these targets in mind and breaking it down, um, you can actually make effective change. I, I know right now at the time of recording this, you know, there's been a lot of big step forwards recently with the fur campaigns and getting certain places to stop selling it. And there, that once again is uh, pressure campaigns working there, and yeah. you can see the targets. I loved uh, an anecdote from another interview you did where you're talking about. Uh, how he had grandmas doing a letter writing campaign. And yeah, I can't remember. Was it Omega or something like that? There was uh, some company that they they all harassed. <laughs> yeah, it was it was um, the third largest shareholder in in Huntington Life Sciences, the lab we were targeting. Um, and I I was you know I was young and I was like letter writing's a waste of time. And these grandmas were like, Hey, we're doing a letter writing letter writing campaign against. Um, gosh, what was the name of that company? I thought it was like Omega or O um something. I don't. I want to say on the but then that's just that's no. the one right now. But, um, no. but anyway, so they started targeting this company with letters, and they would get together and they'd write letters every every week or every month or something, and they would call the office and be like, "Hey, just letting you know, we're doing our letter writing." We're like, "Yeah, great," and they did it for like six months or twelve months or something, and finally we were like, "Oh, maybe we should just do a um, Oracle." That's what it was, Oracle. Oracle, that's and uh, we should we should do a demonstration against Oracle to you know support these their letter writing campaign. And so we organized a protest and we put out a press release saying we were going there. And then we got a call from the, from Oracle. And we're like, we're going to cancel our, our, we're going to sell our shares in, in the lab. And we're like, okay, well, what we always do is like, can you write us a letter saying you're done with the lab and we'll make it public so people know. And they said, sure. They wrote this letter and it was basically like the lab, you know, we thought was going to turn itself around, but it's still engaged in like terrible animal cruelty, something we don't want to be associated with, but mostly we just need these letters to stop. Like, like enough with these letters being written to us as like these grandmas had written so the many grannies. letters. Yeah. to this company that they were like, God, just make the letters stop. Like we don't want anymore. And, I, and that really like changed my mind about the idea of like, we need all the tactics. Cause previously I was like, we need action. We need, you know, heavy handed this and protests and getting people's faces letter writing, what a waste of time. And then it's like, well, they moved this giant corporation that we couldn't do. Um, and it really, yeah, it was a good lesson to be learned that yeah. it's really all the tactics coming together that that makes it work. Because it's great showing how, yeah, just that letter writing had such a big impact, but then also coming together for the pressure campaign, just having that sort of final uh, the final nail is having the protest then added to that other method. And so, right. yeah, that, that whole linking system and, Something that we thought was in, inconsequential was, you know, doing the big brunt of it, but then you just add those small other avenues yeah. and then you topple them. And I, I absolutely loved uh, hearing that story. And um, I love squeaky wheels too. Yeah, squeaky wheels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but um, yeah, I, I can imagine them uh, with the flood of letters there. So uh, yeah, I think yeah. maybe we need to get more of our, our elderly community involved. I'm going to hit in... my mum up after this. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, mum. <laughs> you live in a retirement village. So, like, yeah, get everyone with the pens and paper together. <laughs> uh -huh.
But let's remember, even in, in places like England, they used to have like the grannies where they'd always keep bricks in their handbags at demos so they could smash things out. So you never know <laughs> what, what our grandparents are going to be doing with their spare time. Oh, oh I, I, I hope I can be uh, that radical when I'm, when I'm that age myself, you know. <laughs> By pressuring targets in this way, we can adopt the method of divide and conquer. I know recently you've had a big focus on making sure that we create strategies built on actionable steps. For the animal rights movement, we have not just one, but many colossal companies, corporations, and governmental bodies. Over the course of the show, we have had advocates for single-issue campaigning and also general advocacy. And so I ask, from your point of experience with the SHAT campaign, up against a huge corporation, are single-issue campaigns the way that we can target these larger behemoths um, and make that overall systematic change more attainable. I push back on the idea of calling them single issue campaigns. I, I and I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but I, I think that's generally um, coming from people that might have a, a general lack of understanding of what a pressure campaign does, um, because it's not single issue. It's it's part of a bigger picture. Um, there's this idea that if we just advocate for veganism or plant based diets or or animals in general that when we come against this massive wall, that we can just swing one punch with this vegan outreach and destroy the entire wall at once. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. No social justice movement has ever achieved anything by just talking to people and asking them to change their lifestyle and, and a massive, uh, you know, massive forms of oppression just crumble. And we're asking people, I would say, to, to engage in what is probably the largest uh, shift for in a social for a social justice movement, like we are asking for everyone in the world to change what they eat, how they live, their entertainment, their medicine, their clothes, and not just like omnivores, but vegetarians and vegans as well. Like everything we do and eat and 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 everything comes off the backs of animals, and so this is huge. It's a huge undertaking, and we can't talk our way into this. We can't throw one punch at this wall and expect it to crumble. What we're doing with pressure campaigns is we're pulling bricks out of the foundation of that wall. And if you don't pull all the bricks out, it's not going to fall. And so the idea that like it's a single issue, I think in that way is, is a mistake to call it that. And secondly, when doing a pressure campaign, you're, you are in the immediate advocating for the closure or change of whatever your target is. But at the same time, you're advocating for plant-based eating. You're advocating for a vegan lifestyle. You're encouraging animal activism. So you are doing that general outreach as well at the same time. And I think that's the beauty of pressure campaigns is you get to do everything at once while you're, you know, you're concentrating on pulling those bricks out. And so I, I really like, I hesitate to call them single issue campaigns because I think that's a, a misunderstanding of what goes on in a pressure campaign. So, you know, we talked a bit about the the fur campaigns, for instance, right? People look at that and say, well, it's single issue and it doesn't, it doesn't address the bigger issues. But the, the, the fact of the matter is like, we are, we can't wait for this entire thing to collapse. And then this vegan world pop up uh, in, in its place magically. Like I don't, I, you ask anyone how that happens and no one see, has an answer, but still insists that's the way forward. Um, <clears throat> but, but, but what we do with our pressure campaigns is that we have to, um, systematically remove speciesism from society. And again, we can't do that all at once. So we have to pull the different bricks out of the wall, out of that foundation. And so things like anti-fur campaigns or um, getting animals out of entertainment or vivisection, those are incredibly important because 
we are removing speciesism um, from society piece by piece. And I think when that's when that form of speciesism isn't in someone's face, it starts to disappear. And so when you get rid of like fur designers or designers from using fur or stores from carrying fur, it's important because you are removing that piece of animal mm -hmm. use um, out of the, the, the eyes of society and it's forgotten about. And I think, you know, you can look back in history and see all sorts of different things that people have deemed cruel or unnecessary and they start removing them from society and then it's gone and people don't think about it as much or, or, or at all. And so I think like those things like, um, the fur campaigns are important. And now people say, well, it's a very small target. Like we have this behemoth issue of animal agriculture. Um, and so it, it doesn't behoove us or the animals to work on these smaller things. Um, and this is where I think those difficult conversations come into play, um, that no one likes to have. And I think the reality is the grassroots animal rights movement doesn't have the abilities to take on animal agriculture in a meaningful way. I don't think we can talk our way into destroying it. And I don't think we can currently do pressure campaigns to take it down. And that's not to say that we can't, it's to say that we need to get to that point. Um, I always say it's like uh, football or soccer. It's like, it's like starting a football team with your with your buddies on the weekend and playing for a couple hours. And then after a month being like, how come we haven't won the world cup yet? I don't understand what's going on here. It's because like you have to start small and you have to build up and get better and better and better and practice and practice and practice. And then you can move on to the big leagues. And so that's where we're at as a grassroots animal rights movement. And I think that's a hard thing to admit, but we have a tough time getting rid of these tiny little things, you know, uh, horse drawn carriages, it's a tiny, mm -hmm. tiny little thing. How come it's not gone? If we have the ability to take down animal agriculture, why can't we get rid of 200 horses in a city that are pulling carriages? That should be easy for us, but we can't do it. So we need to start small and we have to practice and get better. And as we do that, we learn how to do these things more effectively, but also we build our communities because the, the smaller that we go, the easier chance we're going to have of winning. And when we win, we build momentum. People want to be part of a winning team. They're not sitting around being like, you know what I want to do this weekend is lose. Like people want to win. And so you have to give them something that will get them excited to win. And that was what the great thing about the Shaq campaign was we were winning something every week and that people were finally like, I want to win. I want to do that. And then they did. And I think that's the great thing about this, this, you know, anti-fur campaign now is that like, at least like in the United States, they started out very small, you know, going after small designers. And over time they got bigger and bigger and bigger because they kept getting so many wins and more people wanted to be a part of it. And now you have, they're going against like Louis Vuitton, this international, you know, designer and, and warehouse that, um, you know, if, if, and when they win, it's going to be a really big deal. And you're coupling that with other people in other countries that are getting bans on the sale of fur. You're getting that, um, you're getting uh, bans on um, uh, fur farms and things like that uh, throughout mm -hmm. Europe. Like it, all these different pieces are pulling that, that, that wall down, that fur wall, which is, of course, part of this bigger, broader issue of speciesism. So we have to pick away at the pieces and we have to take those steps, which people hate to hear, but it's true. We have to take these steps in order to, to win. Um, but, but ultimately, I think that's how we win. And, and we're seeing it happen, um, regardless if people want to admit to it or not. Oh, that is such a fantastic answer. And yeah, I really love that analogy of it. And I'd that's what I was really hoping you would say, because it's just, yeah, it really, 
we we need to to start putting that focus on the areas that we are going to win in. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, we can't take it on by yeah just headbutting the wall. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. It's, uh, and it's it's not to say and and people mistake that as like well you're against outreach and it's like no I'm not. I, I'm against anything we use, any tactic we use as a strategy. Like if I was like the only way we can win is if we go do protests and disruptions. No, that's a losing strategy every time. If I tell you, oh, we just need to talk to enough people and change the demand, that's a losing strategy every time. What you're what you're what you're describing is a tactic, and I think that's a a problem we get wrong a lot in the animal rights movement is confusing the two. And so, you know, we need to be able to have we need to have people that can do all these different tactics. You know, we have great outreachers. We really do in this movement. People can have incredible conversations with people. Um, we have incredible people that can organize protests and disruptions and gr- amazing writers and, and fundraisers and designers and super creative people. If we recognize all those things as tactics and start using those tactics to put together that puzzle, that's when we're going to start to win. And so I, I, I would like just reiterate the fact that we need to make sure that we don't confuse a tactic with a strategy. Brilliant. Definitely, definitely. It's um, yeah. Well, to use to use one of uh, Gareth's favourite expressions, which I I now get to use this week <laughs> at Vegan FTA, we are all about collaboration. So at least yes. very nicely into the next question, <laughs> because um, you know, I'd love to touch on um, how we as a movement, you know, we also need um, we need unity between vegans and also other groups sharing similar goals. Um, so before you know. Everyone starts yelling at their screen at me or whatever, you know. Uh, just relax because a lot of people are not yet reliant, you know, that we're not all aligned with the ethical and morals that we hold. But it doesn't mean that we can't work together towards that common goal and not confined to a single avenue of, of um, change. You know, you are not all, um, only an animal rights activist, but also a climate justice and a human rights advocate. And I know for previous talks that you've given that intersectionalism is something that you do speak passionately about. There's a great image out there, which we love, which states, you know, no one is free until we are all free. Mm-hmm. Um, whole animal, uh, animal liberation and human liberation. And while I've seen many people react positively to this message, like us, um, I've also seen, you know, a lot of the same people recoil when we actually take the time to look at issues that relate to human liberation rather than the animals. So, you know, we'd love to have you share some of your thoughts and experiences on this subject of collaborating and working with other movements to reach that higher goal. Yeah, I think the idea of collective liberation <clears throat> is really important. The idea that like all these uh, liberation struggles are intertwined um, and we need each other literally and figuratively to achieve the things that we want to achieve. Like you can't win animal liberation without environmental liberation and human liberation and they can't win without us. Um, so I think recognizing that is super important. It doesn't mean people often confuse are confused by that by thinking, well, what you're saying is we shouldn't have, we shouldn't care about animals in the animal rights movement. We also need to care about humans in the environment. No, we have an animal rights movement to care about animals, but we also should recognize that like we can't win without them and they can't win without us. And so we, at some point we have to incorporate to a certain degree, all the movements together and including theirs and ours. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that like, the reality is like when it comes to social justice movements, like we are pretty fringe, like we are a small, small groups um, in the grand scheme of things. And um, amongst those small social justice movements, 
the animal rights movement is at the fringe of the fringe. We are on the the edge uh, of of all of it, and um, and so I do think it's like on us to try to break that down, um, and and instead of like just waiting around and be like, well, environmentalists aren't vegans and human rights activists aren't vegans, so why should we care? Why should we bother? Well, because because as I said, we all need each other to win, and since we're the fringe of the fringe, I think it's on us to start, you know reaching our, our hand across the aisle and, and doing that work. And I think, you know, in, in the past when I've seen that happen, um, you know, big things, big things happen. Like we can achieve really big things. And, and I, you see that much more outside of the animal rights movement. You know, you, you can look at pressure campaigns like some of these anti-pipeline projects in the United States and Canada <clears throat> where they are, you know, removing that moral baseline a little and being like, we're all opposed to this for a variety of different reasons, but let's all work together to stop it. You know, for instance, like the Keystone uh, XL project, pipeline project that we were hearing more about these days, you know, that was stopped by grassroots activists doing pressure campaigns. It was started by indigenous uh, activists, predominantly indigenous youth, <clears throat> who started working with uh, environmental activists, climate justice activists, civil rights uh, activists, um, cowboys at some point, uh, you know, all these different people that normally don't work together or in different or, or come from different social justice backgrounds started working together because we, everyone found like the intrinsic value in like stopping this pipeline project and it worked. Um, it was stopped and it, it hasn't been started back up. Um, and that's partly because so many people came together, um, to, to fight. And we've seen it in the animal rights movement. Um, you know, I think it happened back more in the 80s and early 90s where there was this kind of crossover of animal rights and environmentalists working together, particularly in radical spaces. Um, you saw, you know, <clears throat> grassroots animal rights activists doing anti-vivisection work, but also doing forest defense um, with Earth First organizations um, and other forest defenders and those forest defenders showing up for, you know, anti-vivisection uh, demonstrations. Um, you saw um, AIDS activists showing up for anti-vivisection demonstrations, and that's because that work was being done to, to bring those communities together. Um, and it worked. Like, it worked in, in really big and important ways. And there's a lot of examples of it, like, of how it worked and things that it succeeded in and, and all sorts of things. Um, but that's disintegrated over the last couple of decades, which is really unfortunate. You know, spending time and climate spaces and seeing, you know, having animal rights people show up at climate justice marches, you know, to chastise and, and chide people because they aren't vegan, presumably. I mean, they don't really know if they are or not, but like, you know, you're, you can't talk about the environment unless you're vegan, all this stuff. It's just, it's not helpful. Like it's not doing anything to break in down any barriers. You're just pointing bigger and bigger fingers at each other until you just say, you know what, like, fuck off. I don't want anything to do with you. And that, that leaves us nowhere. And that it's, mm -hmm. it's becomes disastrous. Um, and I think if we don't fix that, we will, um, continue to organize alone as a movement. We will continue to organize alone. And when you organize alone, you lose. And I'm not, I'm not interested in losing. Yeah. It's um, so true. And there's even the the added benefit of, you know, if we do want to grow this fringe movement, we've had so many stories on this show alone of people being introduced to veganism from they've attended, uh, say, like vivisection protests, but they've been a vegetarian. They've met the vegans there and then they've turned vegan from that, you know, and all these other communities. If we start to learn from each other, you know, we can be 
connected and we might not have that initial um other ethical and moral connections but if we all have that same goal then we can all come together as one community and yeah we need to grow this community uh mainly with activists more than anything so that we yeah. can get out there and start making that change but yeah it's it's one of those uh things we gotta think about if we include others into our movement then they'll include us in well if we include each other in each other's movements you know we're all gonna grow and if it's all for a just cause then um there is no no loss in that at all. It takes nothing away from us to be, you know, accepting of others. So it's um, for sure. Yeah, for uh, for our audience, you know, if you see an environmental uh, campaign coming up near you, like get involved. You know, you <laughs> bring them to your next animal rights campaign. So yeah, it's totally. One of our favorite favorite lines, isn't it? Lead by example. At the end of the day, I think that's you know so much better than just pointing the finger and uh, yeah, yeah. Try not to be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the bottom line like i don't know it, it is funny how many people are like are like i tried to be you know go to other movements but none of them were interested in veganism and it's like well if you're going there to try to turn people vegan you're going there with the wrong mindset like you go there because you believe in what they're doing like i don't understand how we don't be, how like we can't believe that the environment needs to be saved or humans should be able to be treated with respect and dignity like and, and equitably, like, why are those, why are those things bad? Like, don't we want that in the world? And so I think if we show up in those spaces with like being genuine, um, then, you know, I think we get genuine responses. Like I think real recognizes real, right? Like if you show up at an environmental march and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down for this and I'm vegan, but whatever, like, doesn't matter. Um, you know, people recognize that, you know, I do a lot of work in the climate justice space and, you know, I know that if I need or want any of them to show up for me in an animal rights case, they would, and they do. Um, and that's because those bridges have been built. And, and I think, you know, that's really important to remember, like mm -hmm. you have to approach yeah. it genuinely, um, in order for it to work. Yeah, it's, um, I say true that. And yeah, like, uh, I love that about, you know, being genuine and genuine attracts all genuine. It's fantastic. It's, yeah. I, if you, if you have someone coming across who feels false, you, you're not going to connect, you know, you're not going to take right. on that message. So it's, um, yeah. But I mean, this, just this imagine season, what it would be like to have, have environmentalists come to your space or, or human rights activists come to a vegan march and be like, you're not an environmentalist. You say you're vegan and that doesn't mean you're environment. You know, like if someone came to an animal rights march and started pointing fingers at us, we'd be so fucking pissed. Oh, who is this person? Yeah. Get rid of blah, blah, blah. It's like, but that's exactly what you were doing. Meat eaters can't be environmentalists. You can't love animals and eat them too. Blah, blah. You can. I mean, it's weird for sure, but you can. You can love animals and eat them too. I did. But, you know, I was an environmentalist and, and ate meat. Like, doesn't mean I wasn't an environmentalist. Doesn't mean I didn't love animals. It just means I didn't fit into your box of what is acceptable. And and mm. that's just a guaranteed way to keep your, your community as small as possible and ineffective. Yeah. That, that leads perfectly, though, into what we're going to talk about next, which is something we've been having yes. many discussions about <laughs> the lately. The theme of the week, isn't it? This Actually, week just yeah. keeps coming up and coming up um, again. And that's purity politics. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've seen you talk about it quite a few times, and you know, it really does work well into this whole thing. And um, we've been having many discussions lately. Uh, in our past episode, we had Ondine Sherman, and she was talking about the difficulty of being, you know, 100% vegan 100% of the time. You know, maybe if we all aim for 95%, you know, maybe we'd have more people on board rather than everyone trying to be the glowing example of radiant light and uh, <laughs> pure vegan energy. You know, nah. like if we were a bit more sort of chilled out in it, but not to be confused with uh, 
promoting reducitarian, still promoting veganism, but not being so hard on yourself in that sort of situation. And, you know, doing the research for this and having that previous conversation, it got me to to think about, you know, maybe it's the labeling that is the problem. And for you, having been part of the punk scene back in the day, you know, a scene that's well known for its detestment of labels and people conforming to, you know, this very certain mold, you know, um, for an actionable step, you know, maybe what we need to be doing with this whole purity politics thing is maybe looking uh, looking at it with this sort of punk spirit and maybe maybe we need to confront, you know, conforming to labels as opposed to, you know, confronting people because they don't fit our mold. Right. Yeah, it's a tough one. <clears throat> you know, I, I, like there's been conversations around that with like post-veganism and, and things like that. And for me, it's like, uh, you can polish a turd, but it's still a turd. Right. So it's <laughs> like, uh, like we can complain about veganism and what it means and, and what it doesn't mean and who calls themselves what, but like changing the name or changing the label, I don't think, I don't think it makes those problems go away. It just makes those problems exist under a different label. Um, but I, I think the important piece about purity politics is like, less about the labels and more about like learning to meet people where they're at politically. And, um, you know, some people go vegan overnight. Some people take months to go vegan. Some people take years and years to go vegan. Some of the activists that we celebrate in, in, in the animal rights world did some of their most amazing work when they weren't vegan. You know, you can look at people like Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd, you know, they used to fish off the back of the ships while they're on campaign. There'd be hunters on board. They're all eating meat while they're stopping whale hunts. But like some of the most incredible work they did was while they were eating animals. Is it weird? Yes. Is it like, do we, do we disavow them and say they don't get to call themselves vegan or they don't get to call themselves environmentalists? No, that's ridiculous. If you look at, you know, not to jump ahead, but you know, I'm doing this podcast now uh, interviewing people from, from, um, you know, the 60s and 70s. And a lot of those people, some of the people we revere the most, like people who started the Animal Liberation Front or, or other direct action groups, they all got started in the hunt saboteurs. And the hunt saboteurs still to this day, 50 something years later, they still are not a vegan organization. They have mostly vegans, but they also have vegetarians and omnivores in it. But they're all working towards uh, the goal of ending hunting. Does that activism not count because they weren't they're not vegan? They're not all vegan. Like, no, it's it's about meeting those people where they're at and being like, we want you to come stop this fox hunt. But also, while we're out here, let's talk about how the fox is the same as a pig or a mink or a chicken or a cow. And people start putting those pieces together and they figure it out. And and it works because if you look at the hunt saboteurs, not only has it been around for so long successfully, they've created some of the most inspirational and exciting activists this movement has ever had the modern day movement has ever had since the 60s like that's remarkable it's the same thing when we would do the whale hunts you know we were sabotaging the whale hunts you know there was a lot of people that were were out there that were not vegan or vegetarian or they were hunters or they were fishermen and you'd have these conversations be like yeah the, the gray whale is great but it's a bottom feeder like it just kind of grazes along the bottom and eat stuff off the bottom of the ocean it's no different than a cow it's just a cow grazes on the land and the gray whale grazes on the bottom and they'd be like, Oh, I never really thought of it that way. You know, it's like the gray whale is the cow of the sea. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, we got fishermen to go vegetarian and start eating vegan and things like that because you started putting those pieces together. But if we had said you don't count because you're not vegan, they never would have made that connection and they wouldn't have done the activism that they did. Um, so, 
so I always say that like, if you make a vegan, you don't necessarily make an activist, but if you make an activist, I think you have a pretty good chance of making a vegan. Um, and so I'm much more interested in, in the idea of creating, creating activists by removing those moral baselines and removing that purity politics from our movement. Um, but it doesn't mean we give up on veganism, say it's not important. It just says that peace will come and we can work towards that peace, but it's not the requirement that first piece as a requirement to get into the movement. Uh, and I think that to me, that's an important distinction. Mm, yeah. Cause that's the thing we can have our, our own interpretations of what we believe, you know, well, my, um, interpretation of ethical veganism may be different to uh jackie's in some way um but the thing is you know i'm not going to stop you know I'm, I'm not i'm not going to divorce you and leave the show all of a sudden because <laughs> you know we, we disagreed on you know um one small element or something like that you know it, yeah. it's it's you know i think it's that whole thing of you know you can have those labels but then you don't have to use that as the stamp to get in and out you know you don't have to use that and totally. yeah it's fantastic i love hearing those stories and um you know definitely yeah once again it goes back to being genuine and then you get people generally interested in in what you're doing as well and then hopefully you can both get to a better place you know whether it's you know us going more into the human rights us going more into the environmental rights or them coming in more into the animal rights so it's yeah, yeah. it's lovely i, well, I think you you summed it up best when it was like just don't be a dick like no <laughs> one's gonna be like oh that guy was an asshole to me i think i'm gonna do what he told me to you know it's like approach people genuinely. Don't be a dick. Give mm. people a chance to change because you needed a chance to change too. Um, and, and we all, we all are better off for it. I don't understand what, what the problem is here. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a brilliant insight because you know, with there are so many amazing people doing incredible work out there all the time for this animal or that animal or this particular species or, or right across the board. And I come across it again and again, where I see people doing amazing work and it's like, I want to talk to them. I want to get their work out there. They're doing really impactful stuff. And then I come up against like, Oh, but they're not vegan, you right. know? And it's like, well, does that mean that their work is any less impactful? They're still trying to save. They're trying to create yeah. change, you know? Um, it's, it's a tough one. And I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that you shared your insight because I think it's, um, you know, for, for me, it's about not being a dick, but also going with your gut as well. You know when you know when something is right and when someone is trying to do a good thing and then, totally. you know, that is going to create change for, for that being in, in whatever shape or form. So, Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the middle, middle of, of the show. show. We just wanted to take a quick moment to give thanks to all our supporters and donors who make this show possible. If you would like to support the work of Vegan FTA and our global activism projects, please visit www.veganfta.com forward slash donate. Now, back, back to, to the, the podcast. podcast. So to take a step back uh, to Shaq and evaluating the role that activists plays, a key element that we saw and we've discussed in this uh, already a little bit about it, but how bringing individuals' own traits and talents to the table and working collectively towards that final goal, you know, without being confined to that certain role. I know for us here at the Vegan FDA team, we all wear so many different hats. We all, we all jump from place to place, you know, doing everything and everything. And yeah, we keep on saying for fundraising, we should open a hat shop just because we, <laughs> we were switching roles so much. But, you know, I understand it was your time at art school, um, which served you in good stead uh, doing the graphic designs for the group. And I love in the animal people. Uh, there's an example shown of uh, how to spot a gang member uh, showing uh -huh, the police yeah. and stuff like that. 
Um, one of the highlights, I won't give too much away, folks, because please watch it. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. And so, yeah, here at Vegan FGA, we always try and empower our team, our activists, our general audience to embrace their unique talents and bring bring them to their advocacy, you know, part of them into it. Um, would you say part of the Shack uh, success was uh, l- laying in that open collaboration and nature between the team, you know, allowing people just to pursue what resonated with them most? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, I think giving people the space to do what they're good at, but also the space to fail and try new things is really important. I know you mentioned art school, but honestly, the art school did did shit for me. I didn't learn a single thing from it. It was the biggest waste of time. <clears throat> I'm not saying people shouldn't go to school. I'm just saying for me personally, it was not, it was a bit of a waste. Um, but that was the cool thing about grassroots activism is that like, well, I kind of had a, a, an idea of what I was doing, but I want to learn more. And I had this opportunity to do it and, and learn new skills and, and better myself. And like, I still do that now. I don't know what the hell I'm doing when it comes to editing video, but I was like, looks like fun. I enjoy it. I'm going to start a YouTube channel predominantly just so I can teach myself how to edit and shoot and video and figure all that stuff out. And so with Shaq, it was like when you kind of embrace this non-hierarchical um, form of, of campaigning and um, um, very like, you know, open to any tactic more or less like that gives people an opportunity to, to spread their wings and try new things. And like that, that was the cool thing about, about Shaq and, and other grassroots campaigns. None of us have any formal training. We're not, we didn't go to years of like school to figure out finances or how businesses work or how to organize a protest or any of that stuff. We just did it because we were felt passionately about it and we wanted to learn more and, and see what we could do. And, you know, they talk a little bit about this in the documentary. It's like, this stuff's super hard to figure out. Like, we didn't know how, what we're doing. I went to a two-year art school that I finished in a year and a half. Like, I don't know how to sell and buy stocks on the, on the, on the stock market. Like, I don't know. Um, so it, it, it gives you the opportunity to figure out what you're good at and, and to practice and learn and, and, and implement them. Um, and so, you know, with, with like Shaq, the, the organization, like – there was Kevin, who was really great uh, strategist. He's super smart. Um, he was an incredible speaker. He can get you to do anything. Uh, Lauren was an am- is amazing with the law. Um, she really had a grasp of how that worked, and she also was a great strategist and organizer. And then I had a lot of like abilities to put together web pages and, and design things and make videos and figure all that stuff out. And I I was decent at organizing and strategizing as well. So we kind of had all our bases covered. Um, with that within Shaq, the organization, um, to pull together a campaign and, and figure out all the, the in-between pieces. Um, and uh, it just it just worked. And I think that's when you see like really exciting things happen in, in, or in activism is when we kind of recognize what we're good at and what we're bad at. We find people with complementary skill sets and we come together uh, to form the bigger picture. And, and then we win. And that's that's super cool. I'm into it. Uh, that's awesome. Like we we like to refer to the, the vegan FTA team. We're we're generally a bunch of uh, underqualified um, <laughs> misfits, misfits yeah. who are just bumbling uh, around, you know, and like uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. But that's where all the cool stuff happens, though. You know, it's like yeah. oh shit, I didn't know I could do this, but I figured it out. Like now we can do it all the time. That's rad. Yeah. And even um, even stepping outside of activism for a second as well, I really encourage people to 
you know, take those chances in their life in general. Because for me, I, I was the same. I taught myself how to do all the video editing or the filming and stuff like that, you know, and then I started a career from it being once yeah. again, a, a, a underqualified misfit who knew nothing about it, but you know, it was something that was interesting. Uh, I had the opportunity, went for it, you know, and then that's what has led me to this point here. And for so many of us, I think we don't give ourselves the credit that, I can do this, you know, I can actually make things happen. We, we lose the importance of, uh, of our individualness, you know. We may be one small drop in the ocean, but we have a big impact, especially if we are activists, though. Um, totally. And, yeah, you got to back yourself on some of this stuff. You are going to fall on your face, um, but, hey, mm-hmm. uh, the grass is nice and soft, you know, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think that's super important, particularly in this world now of social media where, we look at, at our movement as to who's like the big names and the big, the most followers and the big likes and the most views and all that stuff. And I can't be that like, that's not me, but like, you don't need to be that. Like, like believe in yourself that you have cool stuff that you can do. You have great talents and you can use them in all aspects of your life to do important things. I'm the same way. Like I didn't, you know, I did this for 10 years or something, 10 years, maybe a little bit more, 14 years before I was like, Oh, I could get a job doing this too. And now I work for, you know, it's a nonprofit and I do, pressure campaigns and do all that same stuff, but I get paid for it as part of my job now. Like, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do all that stuff? But like you said, it's like, yeah, believe it, believe in yourself, shoot your shot and hopefully it works out. Sometimes it does. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. And yeah, another, another self-taught writer here as well. You know, so, <laughs> And that's, that's what we do, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's great. And I think, you know, it helps so much as well when your passion drives you. And um, something that we've, you know, we strongly resonate with that we've heard you talk about in a previous interview as well is the importance of um, those behind the scenes activists. You know, we can't all be front men kind of thing. And while many may aspire to be the sort of kick-ass animal liberating machines or the Un, unflappable public speakers for the animals, which I'm definitely <laughs> not. <unflappable. laughs> the reality is, you know, that not not everyone is as lucky as we are. You know, um, many of us do hold down the ordinary jobs and have skills rooted in less dramatic areas, such as organising documents um, and spending hours doing research. Some of us are not able to go out and um, and do these roles due to physical or no. mental health conditions. Um, indeed, since uh, Vegan FTA was founded, you know. Um, half of our core team has been made up of individuals like me who uh, suffer with chronic health conditions that make these more glamorized forms of advocacy pretty much impossible you know I'd love to be out there doing the frontline stuff but you know sometimes we never know what our bodies are going to do on any given day so having spent so much time entrenched in the shack offices doing the unseen tasks and and day-to-day operations that allow those big wow moments to happen on the streets what are some of the roles you feel we should be celebrating and giving more credit to among our activists? Um, all of them, you know, I feel like when I talk about Shaq, uh, you know, like I said, like, we didn't know what the hell we were doing, but like the things I, I would have loved to have had a tax accountant, like <clears throat> a lawyer, uh, people that could like, you know, tell us how the sec works and the security and exchange commission in the United States, people that went to f- school for finance, like, I, we didn't know any of this stuff. Like we literally called up the government and pretended we were a student and we're like, Hey, can you tell us how, like I would buy a share in this cut? Like what does a company need to, sh- to, to be on the stock exchange and, you know, t- lying your way through those conversations. It would have been much easier if we just had like someone that knew all that and was like, 
this is what needs to happen and this is what you need to do to stop it. Um, there's so many important roles. I, I mean, going back to the story we told earlier about Oracle Oracle uh, partners and the, um, the letter writing, it's like I wrote letter writing off as stupid and a waste of time, but like it was those grannies behind the scenes that no one, no one knows who they were. <clears throat> I couldn't tell you who any of them were now, but they were critically important in getting the third largest shareholder in the lab to, to sell something like 13 million shares of, of this company. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's easy to particularly again in the day of social media where you can be like, Oh, look at that picture of, of the person passing the puppy over the wall or chanting themselves to this and blah, 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 blah. Like, where's the picture of like someone typing away or on the computer or like someone like reading a book or like, you know, it's like all this stuff that like, isn't very glamorous, but God, you can't, you can't be successful without those people. Um, so in, in a way it's hard to glamorize that and maybe they, it, it shouldn't be glamorized or none of it should be glamorized. But like, um, I just think that like, I get a lot of messages from people that are like, I, I want to be an activist, but I don't know where to start. And I'm always like, you just figure out what you're good at and figure out where you want to plug that into and see if they need you to plug it in. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't have to be yelling through a bullhorn. Maybe you're really good at writing. Maybe you're good at writing grants. Maybe you're good at fundraising. Maybe you're good at doing bake sales. Maybe you're good at designing things like everyone needs that stuff and wants that stuff as an organization. Find a, and, and with the internet, you can plug in anywhere in the world, you know, find something cool online that speaks to you and write them. And if you can't find anything that speaks to you or you want to start something locally, again, find those people with, with uh, complementary skill sets of your own, and you, with three or four people, you can pull together a full full organization. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think comes uh, you know with that whole thing. If we want to build a vegan world, well, we need to build a vegan world, and like yeah. our world isn't activism. Our world isn't just uh, what we're doing on the day to day. Is it's every element. You know, whoever made these curtains, whoever you know. And, Every yeah. part of it, everything in this world needs to yeah. be created by somebody. And so if you can do it ethically, morally, uh, environmentally friendly, hu human friendly, everything, you know, then that is fantastic. Bring it, you know, yeah. and um, we'd, I'm that, sure we'd, we'll say go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, when I think about, you know, I think about some of the, the people that really s supported us in the biggest ways in the Shack campaign is because we knew we were under so much pressure and scrutiny that we would, one of the things that we security rules that we had was that the house, which was our, also our office, was never to be empty. So there had to be someone in it 24 hours a day, which meant that, you know, usually a large majority of the time, the three or four people that lived in the house, we could never leave. And like, you might spend weeks never leaving the house without maybe going for a walk around the, the block or something when someone else was home. But like going out somewhere or anything is like, was impossible. You had to find someone that could come and sit at the house. And, um, like, to me, that was like some of the most important things anyone could have done. And what a boring job. Can you come sit in my empty house for an hour? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. It's like, who, who made your curtains? You know how much, how important those curtains are to the FTA office? <laughs> like, like those things are like super important. And like, uh, you just, I don't know. I think people think like, oh, well, I can't offer anything important. Like literally sitting in an empty house was probably one of the most important things. So we could go to the grocery store and buy food or we could go to the park and go for a run or stretch our legs or just have a life that wasn't activism, you know, for an hour out of the five and a half years. Like those little things, I think, really, really make a big difference. Yeah. It's, just, it's way too easy to get caught up in that. Yeah. 
but social media is what is one of the main places and where this is going to be yeah. aired. Um, but you know, <laughs> where you get caught up in in the glamorization and that whole thing. Uh, well, the, the keeping up with the Kardashians type thing. You know, I've got to be this level of you know uh, public importance. But you know, it's, it's like yeah, sitting in the house is way more important than uh, being a Kardashian. So you know, like maybe uh, if you're a Kardashian, you buy multiple houses. Uh, this is true. Yes, but who sits in those houses? I <laughs> ask you that. You know? <laughs> and where did they get their curtains? Yeah, curtains. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of curtains, a lot of houses. So, um, yeah, but talking of credit where credit is due, I must say The Cranky Vegan is one of the few YouTube channels that I religiously follow. Um, oh, your thanks. Three Minute Thursdays, uh, which I must know is actually 10 minute. Fridays for us. Every <laughs> because, Friday uh, morning we can find it. The development of the series and the time zoning for here in New Zealand. But, you know, it's always one of my highlights of the week getting to oh, thank you. Uh, watch your show and catch up on all the great animal rights news and what's what's good, what's bad. Uh, the, the whole series is just, we love and we've been doing it throughout this whole uh, episode already, you know, just uh, bring up those questions of strategies and yeah. you know really holding our movement um, to the same standard that we put out to the opposition as well you know we don't just take it at face value and mm. I love your approach on that uh, just because we're fighting for animal rights doesn't mean that there isn't corruption there isn't misconduct there isn't other missteps taken you know we're humans mm. we we can be a dick at times yeah. you know yeah um so, yeah, how important is it that you feel that we hold our movement that accountable um, and to be so vigilant of our own practices? Yeah, like, I think what you like what you said, like, we're all going to make mistakes um, and we can have conversations about it. And I think we should and we should allow people to make mistakes. But at the same time, you know, they're like we are a global community of people from all different backgrounds and, and ideologies and um, it's my opinion that some of those ideologies just don't mix with the liberation struggle. Um, and so, you know, I think at a certain point, however we decide to do it, whether it's like private conversations or on a YouTube channel, like we do have to recognize like what are the weak links in uh, the chain of our movement. And we have to figure out ways to deal with that. And I think we all have different opinions on what that might look like. Um, and um, I, I know no one likes to have those uncomfortable conversations, particularly if it's about things that perhaps they're, they were engaged in or doing, but I think they need to happen. <clears throat> and um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do it. Um, but I think, I think it's important. And I, I think people often confuse being critical with, with being a dick and being like, well, you just don't like this person or you don't like that person or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I probably don't like them. They're not someone I would choose to hang out with, but it doesn't also mean that I can't be critical of what they're doing. You know, I think if they're hurting more than they're helping, um, I think that's when we need to have a conversation about it. And, and that's a tough one because that's something like, I remember talking to a friend in like 2018, like in like Finland and they were talking about stuff like this. And they're like, well, the question I always ask myself is, it, it not is it helping but is it hurting and that was like a, a good learning moment for me it was like yeah and, and so i think about that all the time like if it's if it's not helping but it's not hurting we can have a conversation about it and see you know how can it be better or what can be done differently but if it is hurting and that's subjective i i get that but if it is hurting then i think it behooves us to have those conversations and be like you know this type of thing shouldn't be happening and we shouldn't allow this type of thing in our movement. 
Um, and particularly if it's a repetitive pattern and a repetitive action that we see over and over and over again. Um, that unfortunately we do see in the animal rights movement, negative patterns over and over and over again. And, you know, we dismiss that criticism as like, well, you're just trying to divide the movement. It's like, no, I'm trying to make the, the movement better. You might disagree with me and that's fine. We can have that conversation, but I don't think it's divisive to try to get rid of the weakest links in, in the chain. One of the things, I mean, you know, we, as Gareth said, we, we've been following you for, for a long time now and I love how you get us to question everything, um, as Gareth said, and, and not only not only the things that could potentially be doing you know harm in some way, but you know there's there's a bit of hyperbole as well sometimes that I think you know in the movement we're so quick to embrace every victory and be like yay this is a massive win and and we'll see stories come up during the week and be like hey this is a great week for animals da 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 this has happened and this has happened and then we're like oh. But now Jake's saying that. <laughs> but, oh, no. <laughs> but it's, you shattered my hope and dreams. You have ruined my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great, though, because, you know, we are very quick to, you know, everybody wants to see the good. Everybody wants to feel that, you know, we, we're moving in the right direction. And, and I mean, we, we totally are. But, you know, sometimes we've got to remember that we shouldn't be running before we can walk and we can't just take our our feet off off the gas pedal and it, it makes us you know really strive harder so thank you for that and you know we, we will keep on doing it and keep you know like you say trying to get better that, that's what it's all about trying to get better yeah. as activists and get better as a movement and one of the features that we love about the cranky vegan is your patreon setup i mean you have a really cool patreon setup you have oh, a, a, a brilliant patreon setup and every month all donations to jake's page are voted on and distributed to grassroots actions sanctuaries and other beneficiaries within the movement which is just so awesome would you um be cared to um yeah share a little about this and your choice to create this service to benefit others rather than yourself yeah totally um i'm lucky like i said earlier i have a job and a nonprofit, so i do make a livable wage like i'm not like rolling in the dough or anything but i i, I make enough to to survive and so i think it was at a point where like there was a lot of questions around like where people's patreon money was going you know these some some folks pulling in thousands of dollars a, a month and like all they're doing is like check out this acai bowl i'm eating on a beach and you're like why are you getting three thousand dollars on patreon for that like Whatever, like I'm, I'm all in favor of people making money um, and being able to get paid to do activism. But I think at some point we have to like take a little, you know, to take a take a peek at it and be like, is this is this where we we're using our our money most effectively? Um, I think you know, for me, I've always wanted to do a small grants program. You know, like we have that little like dream of like, oh, if I won the lottery, what would I do with it? And it's like, oh, you can make like a really cool small grants program where you could like fund grassroots activists and like offset their cost of rent or bills or things like that. Um, and so kind of combine those ideas along with a, a program we do at my job, which essentially is a small grants program where we give away about $450,000 a year um, in small grants to indigenous communities and frontline communities around the world to fight the fights that they're fighting. It's a lot of fights. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, I thought what a great way to do it. Like, I wonder if I can get like, Patreon to, if I could build a Patreon where we give the money away. It was important to me that the Patreon be transparent um, and have as much transparency as possible. And so the idea was like, we can all come together. We can all pool as much as we we can, whether it's two bucks or whether it's 20 bucks. Um, we do what we can when we do it together. And then we are, you know, it's not my decision. We put up a few places to to vote on and whoever gets the most votes 
gets all the money. And it's simple as that. And, and it really removes me from the process. I'm just there to collect the money, which I do. And then I, you know, I screenshot how much money I get and how much I donate. Um, so again, that transparency is there is how much, you know, is coming in and it's going out, which is a hundred percent. Um, and we all do it together. And, and to me, like it was one, a great way to give money away, um, to places that really needed it and that were struggling <clears throat> and needed a quick infusion of cash. But it was also like a good, like lesson about, what happens if we all come together with whatever we can do, whether it's a couple bucks or 20 bucks, whether it's I'm a graphic designer or a letter writer or a protester, a direct action activist, like bringing those puzzle pieces together um, and being like, let's, let's see what we can do as like a cool little community. And it's like uh, at the beginning, I remember thinking, God, if we can give away $500 a month, that would be incredible. Like what an achievement. Um, and it's, it's about a year and a half uh, later since I started. And last month we gave, I think 6,700 US dollars away. So it, it has grown in a way that I had no idea it ever, like it's beyond my wildest dreams, how much money we're giving away. Um, it's incredible. Um, so the Patreon is, has been really exciting and, and really fun to do. Cause who doesn't like to give away money? Absolutely. Especially when it's doing such good as well. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully for some of our audience, you know, who are going over to subscribe to the Cranky Vegan on YouTube, yes. you can also find the link there and we will be providing links with this uh, to get to places like the Patreon and the social media pages because Perfect. Yeah, I think uh, financial <laughs> sort of advocacy as well is something that is quite often overlooked outside of, you know, the whole plant-based uh food sort of sector you know that's where people think of a lot of financial advocacy i'm investing in that future but for grassroots activists uh for organizations even like ourselves we rely on donations and you know it's so important to be able to keep activists going because you know yeah. if, if we if we can't get out there i know uh, for you guys when you're doing shack you're living off fasting tea and mm. you know no <laughs> food in the fridge and like just would not recommend the- no, no. <laughs> As you said, that's not fasting tea, tea you drink in the No, I'm going to strict water. I'm on a water diet. Yeah, but it, it's just one of those things that we need to support them out there because so many of us, we're in it uh, for the animals and we're in it for, you know, the, that passion that's in our heart. You know, that's what we do it for. for right. Just, well slightly touched on the point previously you know some people are in this movement you know hoping to make money but i think the majority of us were in it because we're passionate about the outcome mm-hmm. we're passionate about the uh, liberation we're passionate about the environment passionate about health we're passionate about so many different forms of advocacy you know and that's what drives us and right. for many times you end up flogging ourselves in the process to get there you know living off fasting totally. tea and you yeah. know but you know, for us but I, I don't long. think we should confuse, we shouldn't confuse passion with poverty. Like we don't need mm. to be in poverty in order to be passionate. Like it's okay mm. to make money. It's okay to have a Patreon that you take for yourself. It's okay to go on vacation. You know, people are always like, you're on vacation. How dare you? It's like, yeah. How do you think you, you're an activist for 40 years? You never take a day off. Like you're out of your mind. Like all those things are okay. I think the important part is that we're transparent about it and that we're open mm. about it. And we're like, honest about it. Like I don't need to be making 200% over the livable, livable wage, you know, for where I live. Like, I don't, you know, not that I do. I'm just saying that like, like some people make an enormous amount of money. Um, and, and so I think there is that balance. Let's make money. Let's be able to live comfortably. Let's be able to enjoy ourselves in life. Um, but let's not dip in into this pot too much, you know? And I think it's that, that balance. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that, that's the thing. For all of us, you know, we can support other activists through this and make it so that, you know, we can all live, you know, live to let yeah. life happen, you know. Um, exactly. And we don't all have money to invest much as we would like to, you know. Right. But you can invest those small amounts and together they become big amounts, you know, even if you've only got yeah, enough totally. to, you know, if you want to shout Jake a cup of coffee or something, you'll know that, you know, he's going <laughs> to give it to somebody else. But, you know, it's it's really towards doing some good because, yeah, we, we yeah. can't all – you know, it'd be, yeah. be nice to invest in, in all of that kind of stuff, but it's it's a wonderful way to do so much good. I love it. Yeah, but, it's cool when you, you we give places money that are like, I just had a flood or there was a fire or we're in the middle of a war um, and I need 10,000 bucks to like survive for the next three months. And it's like, cool, here's $7,000. Like you you were you have like $200 raised, but here's 7,000 more. It's like, I could have given them $25 and that would have been great, but I could have pooled the $25 together with 470 other people. We could have get, and we gave 6,700 or 7,000. Like, mm. I don't know. It's, it's a cool lesson way beyond my wildest dreams about like what happens when, like you said, when we just pool a couple bucks together. It's exciting. Absolutely. I'm and if sorry, you're watching this and you do it. have lots of money to invest, feel free to give that well, and he will also give it to other people. <laughs> but um, we must also talk about a another fantastic development of your channel and animal rights sort of content, and that is the creation of the Radicals and Revolutionaries podcast, a direct action oral history show exploring roots, well, it's the roots, the radicals, and the revolutionaries of the moment of the yeah. movement uh with co-host uh tyler star this podcast is brilliant uh i've oh, thanks. I've, I've been consuming it like non-stop lately <laughs> you need to put out more episodes mate yeah but you know it's definitely something i think everyone should be adding to their uh listening list and it's something that really hi it highlights the importance of learning from the history of the movement and the activists who have built it, like we've been trying to do in this this uh, interview itself as well. Um, I understand it's quite a lengthy process getting everything together and everything in line yeah. set up for this this new venture. So um, would you care to share with our audience a little bit about the podcast and potentially uh, any of your plans moving forward with it? I want more totally. episodes, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of, <laughs> we can only do one a week. Um, my, the, what... You know, just a little bit of history on the YouTube channel. I originally was going to start a podcast called My Friends Do the Coolest Shit because I have a lot of friends that do cool shit and I wanted people to hear their stories. And then I realized, like, I don't ever listen to podcasts. I don't know anything about podcasts. I, I know nothing. So I, I started a YouTube channel instead. And I do have a playlist on there called My Friends Do the Coolest Shit where I've interviewed my friends. It's a cool series. No one ever watches it, but it's worth checking out. Um, fast forward, like, three years later, Tyler, my friend, contacted me. He was like, hey, you want to do a podcast? I was like, I don't know anything about it. And, and he's like, well, I'll produce the whole thing because he does. He works on a couple cool cool podcasts himself, um, like Protego Cast and um, uh, Chick Peeps. Peeps Chick Pe I always call it Chick Peep Pops, which is guys, crazy, <laughs> but it's Chick Peeps. It's like a cereal. Chick Peep Pops. Um, Chick Peeps <laughs> podcast. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, it was a time when um, – this guy, his name was Jim Buckner, I believe. He's in England. He passed away. And and um, I kind of looked into him a little bit and because I, I saw a bunch of like animal liberation people sharing that he had died. And I looked into it and I, he was someone that um, had tried to 
liberate a dolphin from an aquarium in the UK, along with Barry Horn and Mel Broughton and one other person. And that's an upcoming episode, which you'll hear all about in two weeks, um, how they tried to liberate this dolphin from an aquarium by literally just picking him up in a stretcher and walking him to the ocean. Um, and uh, he died. And, and I just thought I'd always heard about Mel Broughton doing it and Barry Horn doing it, but I never heard about Jim Buckner being a part of that team. And it wasn't a secret. It's just that like no one really talked about it. And I just thought like his story dies with him, you know, and that seemed really kind of sad to me that there is this really amazing piece of, of history in our movement that just has passed away and, and we don't get to hear that story. And so I thought like, let's just do a, like an oral history podcast documenting the rise of, of radical animal rights activism in the modern day animal rights movement. And we started you know, talked to some friends and like Ronnie Lee and, and Roger Yates and said, who else can we talk to? And he was like, oh, I did this person and this person. And we got in touch with them. So we got in touch with like um, Dave Wetton, who was like one of the original hunt saboteurs from 1963, who started the organization and carried it all the way into the 80s and 90s and talked to him. Uh, we talked to Ronnie Lee, who, who co-founded the Band of Mercy and the Animal Liberation Front. Roger Yates, who's one of the first press officers um, and just kind of not saying like all these people are going to die tomorrow. Uh, hopefully not. But, <laughs> but the idea that like, I mean, you know, they're older activists and like we want these, these pieces of our history preserved that um, I don't think a lot of people work towards preserving. And also they're just like incredible stories, like what amazing stories to, to hear, like what it was like to run and run around inside of a laboratory or, or bury or, um, uh, Ronnie Lee, the first time he ever liberated animals from a laboratory, like one of the first times that it ever happened, like hearing these stories from the person that did it is such is, is incredible. So I love doing this podcast more than any other project I'm working on right now, probably because I don't know what I'm doing and Tyler does all the hard work. And uh, <laughs> so season one is is documenting the rise of, of direct action in the animal liberation movement in the United Kingdom. Um, and that had that will carry us until about mid June, I think. And then um, we're going to start season two, which we're working on now, which is the same premise, but in the United States, talking to the people who did the first liberations and first uh, economic sabotages and arsons and things like that in the U.S. Um, and getting their stories um, and where it goes after season two. Uh, it's just, I don't know, probably through Europe um, and then maybe to other other radical movements like the Earth Liberation Front or things like that. So those are the plans. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Yeah. I've yeah. really enjoyed um I think she was going to an alias uh, Caroline. I think it was Caroline, she was talking about yeah. the animal, yeah, animal liberation leagues and stuff. And mm -hmm. you know, going back to a previous point we made in this interview about the whole, you know, culmination of um, actions and stuff like that, and them having the protest set up, and the protesters didn't know that they were also planning to, you know, go into the lab in the background as well. Yeah. So they sort of made their own sort of scapegoats there, but they were all doing they're doing valid activism there, and they're doing their part, and then this part's doing that part and it just like the whole coming together of it and so yeah please folks um get and add it to your your list to listen to um download it because it's on spotify is it spotify itunes uh most of those places it's it's everywhere and you can also listen to it on our webpage radicalsrevolutionaries.com which has some awesome merch actually i'm going to give a shout That's out right. to because um i love yes. that that hoodie at the at the time of recording this there's a brilliant hoodie with um the liberation of guinea pigs i believe it is isn't it yeah, it's the first band of mercy liberation ever. So really the first liberation in modern modern animal rights movement. Kind of celebrating that. Yeah. Oh, it, Definitely it, something to celebrate. It's so yeah. great to you know, and it's wonderful to 
to celebrate and and um and educate a new generation of people about you know activism before the internet you know when people mm-hmm. had to find things out the hard way and really put the yeah. hard yard thing, you know doing that stuff in person it's, it's brilliant yeah totally so we can't thank you enough for coming on the show today i feel like i've learned so much just through this conversation Absolutely. um hopefully i didn't fanboy out too much because i no. i i really enjoyed watching your content all this time and i hope our audience are going to start enjoying it if they're not already if you're not already get on there get to it get out of there. <laughs> do, watch do watch the animal people yes. if you haven't seen that i was what we were uh you, you guys are amazing um role models for vegan lifestyle because we were watching it and i said to Gareth, did these people not age like look at them. <laughs> you're not watching close enough I, maybe i have my filter on my D uh, filter <laughs> Got to cut all my hairs <laughs> off, but yeah, no, no I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope yeah, everyone has enjoyed me. enjoyed this as much as we have. Thank you for listening to this episode. Check out the show notes for relevant links and ways to get involved. A great place to get active is our Vegan FTA Take Action page, where you can make a difference in just a few moments. Once again, if you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating on your favorite podcasting platform. We are Vegan FTA. Vegan for For the the animals. animals.